content warning. This episode contains difficult histories and personal narratives that could be traumatic for some listeners. Content includes violence and death. Please be advised. The year is 1945. A B-29 bomber flies over the Japanese city of Hiroshima. There is a flash of light and tens of thousands are immediately dead. This number would increase to hundreds of thousands after Nagasaki suffered a similar fate. Many of those who did not die immediately suffered mortal wounds or later the effects of radiation. American President Harry S. Truman demanded that Japan unconditionally surrender. Finally, after Nagasaki, the Japanese government did so. World War II had ended largely because of this B-29 bomber that flew over Hiroshima in 1945, Enola Gay. But at what cost? American veterans always saw their role in the Good War as a moral one. After all, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941 unprovoked and committed heinous war crimes. But Japanese civilians remembered those who were lost at or years later because of these bombings. How do we interpret this? In the 1990s, the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum attempted to do so. However, they faced a political and media frenzy as veterans disdained their interpretation of the events. Much of the scholarship about this controversy dates back to mid through late 1990s. Therefore, now that it is 2021, we shall revisit this event in retrospect. This is the Enola Gay exhibit revisited on the Kalamazoo Valley Museum Interpretive Hour. My name is Gray Wilson. My name is Jacob Wolf. On today's episode, we will explore the perspectives of those involved in the Enola Gay exhibit's controversy. We shall consider the different perspectives of those involved. Curators, historians, veterans, Japanese civilians, politicians, and the military. But what was this controversy, Gray? So, upon the 50th anniversary of the conclusion of the Second World War, the National Air and Space Museum proposed an exhibition that would feature the Enola Gay, the very superfortress that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. After the war, the plane had been transported to various locations, including Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, and as its quality deteriorated, it was decided that it was to be disassembled and moved to the Paul E. Garber Preservation, Restoration, and Storage Facility for the National Air and Space Museum, where a proper restoration would take place. In the 1980s, multiple groups made the final push for a restoration of the aircraft, and for this purpose formed committees with the express purpose of raising funds for the, quote, restoration and proud display of the Enola Gay, end quote. The restoration of the Enola Gay has been the subject of an intense debate since the genesis of the project between curators, historians, veterans, Japanese civilians, politicians, and the military, who all had vastly different conceptions of what the exhibit would encompass. Consequently, the Smithsonian ultimately felt a sense of ambivalence about the display of the plane and the surrounding exhibition, and for that reason precisely, the original planned exhibition never came to fruition. 
However, this particular case study raises a myriad of questions about the interpretive field and for that reason precisely remains very relevant even today. The controversy highlighted the fact that there was no concrete resolution regarding what sort of narrative the exhibit was going to take, as well as the fact that successful interpretation cannot take the perspective of just one group. It instead needs to present a comprehensive narrative. In this way, we can examine the viewpoints of the different groups caught in the midst of this controversy to determine the opinions they held and how they contributed to this epic implosion of ideas. So let us look a little bit more into the perspectives of those involved in this controversy. First and foremost of those involved were the curators and scholars. Martin O'Harwit became the director of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in 1987. A scholar educated in astronomy, he was born in Prague, however, had worked in the United States most of his professional life. He, alongside the curators of the exhibit, oversaw the whole project. They wished to incorporate contemporary historical scholarship alongside veteran commemoration. But how does one balance these two facets? In reporting to the Baltimore Sun, Harwood said that no matter what the museum did, they'd screw it up. The 1980s and 1990s were at a time of contentious cultural wars. This included heated discourse about the nation's history. There were already debates which juxtaposed the consensus narrative of a heroic America with revisionist narratives, which ask us to constantly engage in critique to continually find new explanations for past events. The latter is the perspective of scholarship and therefore the curators and academic historians involved in this project. For this reason, they felt it was crucial to explore the aftermath of the bombings. The purpose of the exhibit was to highlight the dawn of the nuclear age and Cold War. The intention was to not explore anything prior to the dropping of the bomb. Enola Gay was intended to symbolize the beginning of a new era of world history, an atomic era of paranoia and fear alongside an uncertainty about bombing Japanese civilians. After all, although not used by curators, a Gallup poll from 1995 demonstrated that 41% of respondents did not approve of the decision to drop the bomb, gave the curators, from their perspective, ample reason to exhibit the newly restored Enola Gay in this context. These revisionists often felt that militarism and patriotism fielded international colonialism, racism, global weapons proliferations, and environmental deterioration. They felt that the primary purpose of exhibits was to be didactic and work against destructive forces. They worried that past exhibits favored the technical and traditional over the interpretive and therefore fueled these negative consequences. They sought to explore and understand the devastating impact of wars. Likewise, influenced by contemporary historical scholarship, curators aimed to explore whether or not the bomb was necessary to end the war and explored other reasons for its deployment. These included Harry S. Truman's desire for diplomatic influence on the Soviets and feelings of revenge. They performed the exhibit as if it were an institution with academic freedom. In a way, they knew they were pushing the boundaries. However, the combating facets of memory and history were divisive. Indeed, the first draft of the exhibit attempted to combine discourse with commemorating those who fought on the American side in World War II. The original script valorized those veterans 
who took part in the bombings, recognizing that it came from a place of service and good intentions. They attempted to blend the genres of commemoration and revisionism. Overall, curators and historical scholars felt that their analysis of such events was valuable and righteous because of both their training and archival evidence. However, because of their memories, others felt differently. They labeled these individuals as revisionist, politically correct, anti-Vietnam generation, and postmodernist. Although half of these labels are neutral terms used in academia, in this context, they were all negative. Well, why did these people and their memories oppose the curator's perspectives? Gray will outline this point of view. Much of the following information is courtesy of a publication by Michael J. Hogan, who thoroughly details the perspective of veteran groups over the course of this controversy. American veterans, unlike curators at the Smithsonian or professional historians, interpreted the events at Hiroshima and Nagasaki through a lens that strictly appealed to their personal experiences. The initial and main problem was that while the original purpose of the exhibition was, quote, to get people to think about the origins of the nuclear age and everything that's come with it over the past half century, end quote, veterans envisioned an entirely different history than the one being described. Veterans viewed the Enola Gay as a totem of American technological triumph that deserved center stage in an exhibit marking the 50th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Japan. The problem that arose was that it was incredibly difficult to balance the voice of the American veterans against the silent voice of those who had perished at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, seeing that the veterans saw their actions as completely unproblematic and historians wanted there to be an appropriate emphasis upon death and destruction. The Enola Gay exhibit at the National Air and Space Museum planned to raise a great deal of very critical questions that would urge guests to think critically about the events that took place during the war by asking about whether or not the decision to drop the bomb was truly necessary, whether or not Truman's decision was motivated by racist perceptions, etc. The multiple groups in the defense of American veterans felt as if these were questions that seemed easy on the surface level, but at the time, and in the context of the war, were vastly more complicated. Veterans had an issue with the fact that the proposed exhibit had, quote, an accent of the effects of the bombing rather than the fact the bombing ended the war in nine days, end quote. While the veterans felt as if they had performed a noble deed by saving countless lives after ending the war so promptly, they felt somewhat humiliated to have the narrative paint them as racist and vindictive aggressors. Veteran organizations criticized that their vision of sacrifice and valor as themes for the exhibit were being overshadowed by the exhibit's emphasis on the devastation of Japan, as well as diplomatic considerations and racism in the decision to drop the bomb. This, in turn, led them to believe that the Japanese would be perceived as victims of their aggressive actions, which were racially motivated and unnecessarily brutal, and so, this of course led veteran groups to feel very misrepresented in the exhibit. As many veterans watched news updates on the new exhibit, they felt offended when considering that they could have easily been one of the lives that was taken in an invasion had the bombs not been dropped. With this impression, they attempted to assert authority over the curators, feeling that their experiences transcended the need for any outside input. They ultimately felt as if a museum in the United States that was representative of something that they were involved in should fall under their supervision. Military groups such as the American Legion or the Committee for the Restoration and Display of the Enola Gay, which were comprised of thousands of veterans, began to voice their dissent. It was critical for them to make their voices heard at this stage 
seeing that what was at stake in this controversy was the domination over the process of historical representation, something that appealed to the veterans considerably in this case. Veteran W. Burr Bennett Jr., for example, complained that, quote, the Smithsonian's plans were an insult to every soldier, sailor, marine, and airman who fought the war against Japan, end quote. Seeing that, as described by Paul Tibbetts, pilot of the Enola Gay on the day of the bombing, they're trying to evaluate everything in the context of today's beliefs. Rather than delve into the significance of the event in terms of its impact on Japan, veteran groups were more concerned with the display of the Enola Gay being proud and patriotic. These groups were incredibly offended under the perception that the Smithsonian had the right to speak on their behalf and discount their experiences. Seeing that they had lived the events, veterans were under the impression that their collective memories and voices added up to the nation's history in spite of any external criticism. In short, they felt that historians did not have the power to challenge the views of history of those who had actually lived it. Despite the carnage that took place during the war, veterans wanted the museum and its respective exhibit to commemorate the sacrifices that they had made for what they considered a just cause. Rather than fixate upon the destruction in Japan, what was being missed, according to the veterans, was an appreciation of how Truman's decision to drop the bomb had saved countless lives that would have otherwise been taken in an American invasion of the Japanese homeland. The one issue that particularly offended American veterans was that Japanese and American war strategies were being thought of as morally equivalent in the context of the proposed exhibit. American veterans claimed that unlike the Japanese, they did not pillage or brutally torture their victims to death as they had seen. Veterans argued that their actions benefited the Japanese in the long run because, quote, American compassion is unique among nations, stated by Herbert Jaff. Seeing that the United States did not seek vengeance in their actions nor reparations at any point afterwards, veterans of the U.S. felt as if the occupation that took place after the war was helpful in building Japan back up, as they did to Germany with the Marshall Plan. Again and again, veterans stressed that although research and facts painted a certain narrative, it simply wasn't justified, seeing that it wasn't being interpreted in the atmosphere of the past, as well as the fact that the quote-unquote beneficial things they had done were not receiving proper recognition. They felt as if the exhibit was fixated solely on the last six months of the war and ignored the fact that Japan had a long history of aggression towards the United States throughout the 1930s, which was further intensified by the assault on Pearl Harbor. To reconcile the veterans after unrelenting media attacks, the museum produced a revised script based on the recommendations of the veterans which shrank the section on the legacy of the bomb, in turn angering Japan. Additionally, photographs of victims and artifacts were removed, despite having been used precisely for the purpose of balancing the narrative. The Smithsonian's failure to encompass their perceptions in an exhibit that was satisfactory to them struck both the sense of personal and national identity in the veterans involved. Ultimately, the feeling among veterans, according to Enola Gay pilot Paul Tibbetts, was that, quote, the Enola Gay had been miscast, seeing that this group of valiant Americans had been denied a historically correct representation, end quote. However, despite these varying perspectives, the victims of the atomic bombs themselves, the Japanese who lived at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, have their own unique perspective. Many Japanese and Japanese Americans point to the story of Sadako Sasaki when considering their trauma but resilience. Sasaki was not even two when the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. She survived the bomb. However, ten years later, a lump was found on her neck. Sasaki was diagnosed with leukemia and would die a year later. 
Many of the Japanese civilians who survived the bomb suffered from radiation-induced cancer and other diseases. Her family and friends helped erect a statue of Sadako Sasaki in Hiroshima to remember her. On her statue are paper cranes. When she was in the hospital, she folded over a thousand. Some believed that if you folded a thousand paper cranes, you would be granted one wish. She wished to be well again. However, as we know from her death, her wish was not granted. But her memory does not live in vain. Her story tells of the strength and resilience of Japanese atom bomb victims. Overall, the cost of life was around 70,000 lives directly, and even more from related disease. 350,000 people lived directly in the area of Hiroshima that was bombed. Most of these people were like Sasaki, having no direct involvement with the military, just civilians living and working. These victims also experienced internal discrimination after the bombing. Japanese citizens who had not lived in Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the time of the bomb were afraid of the victims. They felt that their radiation would pass on to others either physically or genetically. Sachiko Matsuo survived Nagasaki. She recalls that people would not marry those who survived the atomic bomb. There was a stigma. She is still constantly concerned that even her grandchildren could be affected by the radiation that she was exposed to. She states that it makes her live without much happiness. Also, she is afraid that it could happen again. She cannot think positively about the future. However, the traumatic memories survivors and family members and friends of victims have about the bomb did not lead to retaliation. Universally, the Japanese perspective is to recognize the terrors of atomic and nuclear war and to advocate for nuclear disarmament. Setsuko Thurlow dedicated her life to nuclear disarmament. She also experienced hunger, poverty, and discrimination following the bomb. But despite the trauma that she has, she is confident that if Japanese victims tell their stories, then nuclear disarmament is possible. So Hori, who was in middle school at the time of the Hiroshima bombing, feels likewise. Although his family went through similar traumas, having seen piles of human bones and resorted to eating grass, he advocates for the telling of these stories. Likewise, he promotes world peace and disarmament. The site itself has been converted into a memorial for world peace. The Genbaku Dome, the only standing structure after the bombing, has been preserved in its ruined state. It holds great symbolic value, for it demonstrates how a nuclear bomb can make anything hollow and ruined in a blink of an eye. Memory is constructed based on traces. These traces can be artifacts, archives, material culture, or in this case, the only surviving structure that represents the bombing. The preservation of the Genbaku Dome, juxtaposed with contemporary Hiroshima, is an exercise in memory. Alongside the stories of those who survived or died years after due to the effects of radiation, the site promulgates empathy. It puts visitors in the shoes of those who experienced the A-bomb. Overall, the trauma of Hiroshima and Nagasaki have transformed into a collective pain that all Japanese share. Collectively, the Japanese perspective is one of victim remembrance and world peace. With everything that has been discussed today, the perspective that I have found myself more aligned with is that of the historians and curators who advocated for a more studied and perceptive recounting of the events. I don't think that any previous approach was necessarily ideal, 
but I do think that the best approach would have been an adaptation of the original one proposed by the National Air and Space Museum. Part of the plan was to urge visitors to take sides in the historiographical debate at hand, which is a massively important part of the practice of interpretation. It's vital for the interpreter to present the information or situation in its entirety in order to have a non-biased discussion surrounding it. It would of course not be in good taste for the museum to only focus on the destruction brought upon Japan, just as it would be inappropriate to only be inclusive of veteran perspectives. Leaving out important information presents a narrative that is insufficient and severely limited and would do nothing but perpetuate the whitewashing of the American historical record in order to appear more dignified. An exhibit as such ought to be, as described in the article by Hogan, quote, more than a display of historical facts, but rather an exercise in historical thinking, end quote, which of course can't be achieved without the necessary balance of information. There are aspects to many of the arguments in this controversy that I think merit consideration. For example, a Japanese perspective is vital in understanding the impact of the bomb when taking into account the amount of civilians affected and the long-term impacts that this has had on the act of atomic warfare. Clearly, the effects of the bomb are still ongoing to this day, and for that reason it's very important to take their perspective in order to understand how members of Japanese culture interpret these events. This is precisely what caused problems with the American veterans, seeing that they wanted to control the entire narrative, which of course is not acceptable. Despite this, I do agree with the American veterans in thinking that there exists somewhat of an obligation for the bomber to be displayed. Something representative of such a pivotal event in our nation's history certainly deserves recognition, just in a cautious way. Additionally, it's important to keep in mind that historical reality is more important than personal memory in the interpretive context. In this case, the veteran perspective that had been taken since the end of the war was finally questioned, which was ultimately the root of the entire controversy. This situation was unique because it represented the decision to revisit an incredibly uncomfortable moment in American history through a new interpretive lens and draw new conclusions. What we witnessed throughout the course of this controversy was the failure to do exactly this, but what we were left with has given us the opportunity to revisit it yet again with a better understanding of the complications. Ultimately, it's crucial for us to look at the events in the context of today's beliefs and look at them in their entirety. Otherwise, we would be neglecting important perspectives, which would be, of course, an outright injustice in the interpretive field. Understanding interpretation is understanding that the practice is ever-evolving, as well as understanding that it is combining perspectives and new information to draw one's own conclusion, which Jacob and I have done with this case study. Personally, I appreciate and ascribe to a mixture of narratives, although these heavily align with those of the curators and Japanese and Japanese-Americans. First and foremost, the Japanese perspective, in my opinion, is an important one. Although there is great merit to the recognition of Japanese war atrocities in Nanjing, at war camps, etc., this does not speak to the experiences or responsibilities of ordinary, non-military Japanese citizens. True, Japanese war crimes were terrible, leading to the deaths of many innocent civilians. However, it is a Flawed argument to say that this justifies the American bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Americans that defend the decision claim moral superiority, or that there is no morality in war, or that they saved Japanese lives, or that the Japanese started it, to name a few justifications. To address the claim of saving lives, this assertion that 
Truman made the decision to prevent millions of American casualties is rooted in a 1947 article written by Henry Stimson because in the year 1946, Truman and his supporters saw a variety of dissenting voices from Manhattan Project scientists and other officials on the decision to drop the bomb. Stimson wrote this knowing the numbers were wrong. A 1945 figure predicted 46,000 American deaths if an inland invasion occurred. This was on the high end. Beyond this, Jane Burns was a politician who convinced Truman that diplomatic negotiations with the Soviet Union and Japan were not needed if they dropped the bomb. And although specifics are debated, it is unanimous from all operating generals at the time that the bomb did not prevent an inevitable land invasion for the end of the war could have been prevented with diplomatic maneuvers. From this evidence, it is clear that saving American lives was not a priority. Plus, the issue of Pearl Harbor and Japanese war atrocities is a classic case of two wrongs don't make a right. Innocent people were killed during war, using a weapon that led to continual global conflict and fear. Therefore, it is very important to hear the stories of those who experienced the bomb firsthand and use it to advocate for world peace, in my opinion. It is strange to me that someone like Paul Tibbetts, who flew in Nola Gay, still advocated for nuclear arms up until he passed and believed that their existence ensures world peace. In an interview from the 1980s, he talks as if the bomb brought about world peace. However, the legacy of the Cold War and years of atomic, duck-and-cover fear proliferated. Therefore, a Japanese perspective is crucial in exploring the origins of an atomic age. The curator's original exhibit intended to explore the legacy of the bomb, not the legacy of Japanese war atrocities. And it is apparent that the legacy of the bomb was an outright horrific one. Whether it be the legacy of Japanese civilian trauma and death, the legacy of Cold War competition, bomb scares, fears of nuclear holocaust, they all permeate into the present. Whether or not the bomb was necessary to end the war and save lives, in my opinion, the legacy it created destroyed many more than those it saved. The Korean War, Vietnam, Desert Storm, etc. are all products of the Cold War, which Enola Gay is in part responsible for, although not exclusively, of course. From my perspective, how could we not explore this legacy when exhibiting such an artifact? For those former critics of the exhibit, maybe who have now passed, what about this context? They were concerned about the context of Pearl Harbor and Japanese war crimes, but what about what came after? Most of those who would view the exhibit in the 1990s lived through this period of Cold War fear and diplomatic competition. As someone born in 1997, I still feel the legacy of Enola Gay and Truman's decision to drop the bomb. Although the exhibit did indeed use federal funding to explore a perspective that reflected poorly on the United States, can we not look at this and learn from it? Is it not more respectful to hold one's own country accountable so that it can grow into the future? Does growth not mean world peace? Is there world peace without nuclear disarmament? These are all questions that ran through my head as I relived this exhibit in 2020 into 2021. Therefore, in my opinion, the context the veterans wanted to explore was one that was already explored and agreed upon. But the most meaningful history to explore are the ones which we agree the least upon. This contentious issue, if explored, could lead to growth in mutual understanding, something that we presently lack. Having such a controversial exhibit take place at a major and venerable museum is important. It engages discourse and understanding at a national level. If this conversation happens, then the United States and the world can potentially grow and move on. That is what I hope, at least.
Maybe it is an optimistic perspective, but what's so wrong with that? In my opinion, I agree with people like Setsuko Thorlau and Sohori. One step to promoting world peace is to have these discussions about the legacy of the bomb, the victims affected, and disband nuclear arms. What does commemoration do but relive the same narrative and keep us in the same place? The nuclear legacy continues on and not much has changed. All in all, when looking at the Enola Gay controversy in today's context, I think that it would be important to keep in mind what I was emphasizing before about presenting a well-rounded narrative. It seems like a relatively simple concept at the surface level, but it becomes difficult when public outcry challenges what is being presented. Despite this, good interpretation can't be concerned with criticism. The Enola Gay exhibition represents such a unique case study in the field of interpretation, seeing that the decision-making was fraught with dispute since the very beginning. Although I do not agree with the eventual decision by the Smithsonian to appease the American veterans and politicians effortlessly after such a long struggle, this controversy nonetheless represents something one-of-a-kind. We would be remiss to not give proper acknowledgement to such a monumental artifact in American history, yet I certainly feel as if it could have been done in a more effective way for all of the parties involved. In a context as such, where the groups at hand are all in disagreement, it's the interpreter's job to approach the matter through all of the given perspectives in order for the public to make their own determinations, no matter the level of discomfort involved. In this way, it is ensured that every person leaves the exhibit with an insightful and discerning opinion after having been exposed to all of the perspectives that comprise the event, because ultimately, that is what interpretation is all about. The 1990s were obviously not the easiest time and place to create an exhibit about the dawn of the atomic age. Since the Enola Gay B-29 bomber was just restored, people have flocked to the exhibit in large numbers. Therefore, it was bound to garner public attention. Plus, the institution had a history of commemoration. Therefore, this is what American veterans expected. Beyond this, the political atmosphere would not allow something like this to be explored in a federally funded institution. Federal funding for the arts and humanities served primarily propaganda purposes in the Cold War. Now that the Soviet Union was dissolving and this need was no longer there, the Smithsonian's funding was already at threat from a majority Republican Congress. They did not set themselves up to succeed, because they did not consider their own context. However, that does not mean that curators should have sacrificed their intellectual integrity for partisan pressures. Historians have an important role to defend other historians and public historians' right to express analysis without political interference, whether or not they agree. Politicians wanted to reduce history to bunk, that Fordist approach, which romanticized some aspects of the past and rejected others completely. However, historians are not part of the political spectrum and should not fall prey to its influence. Also, when a fairly broad social consensus exists, minority views can easily be silenced and marginalized. Those individuals who defended the bombings constructed strategic remembrances to defend their memory. This is a large reason why this narrative was uncontested, because veterans were a part of this broad social consensus. Overall, the way in which curators later bent to their demands of these politicians and American veterans is problematic. Although they did not approach the issue with sensitivity to their own context, 
they should have at least stood their own ground. Interpretation is about allowing people to make their own assumptions about issues. It is a didactic practice. It guides all museum exhibits. Commemoration and celebration is indeed an interpretive perspective. However, it alone often provides people with little room to make their own assumptions. If in 1995 Gallup poll states that 41% of respondents did not approve of the dropping of the bomb, then that is a large percentage of individual perspectives that need to be considered. Discourse will indeed breed conflict, but out of conflict comes resolution. A multi-perspectival approach is important to encourage this discourse. Therefore, it is the interpreter's responsibility to engage and encourage multiple perspectives. This means, in one part, recognizing the veterans' perspectives, but also the Japanese perspectives, scholarly opinions, and even those Americans who opposed the bomb. These perspectives include revisionist histories and a consideration of the multiple perspectives on the past. No one writes a first draft of anything without revising it. First drafts are full of errors and inconsistencies. Revisions potentially ensure that a more fleshed-out interpretation is provided alongside orthodox narratives. That is what interpretation is and represents. Discourse, understanding, questioning, conflict, and resolution. From there, one can come to their own conclusions, like Gray and I did towards the end of this podcast. What is your conclusion? Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast for bibliography, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and visit us in two weeks when we will talk about the new normal.